I grew up on a stretch of land that my family was once enslaved on. Like coming from rural Alabama, I, snet, I sat next to students in high school whose family owned mine. You have white families who have the same surnames as the black family. That's not by coincidence. So I feel like as I've gotten older, I get a little piece of the puzzle each time. Hey guys, welcome back into How's That Working For You, a podcast that tries to look uh, at life through the lens of Enneagram, sometimes 12-step work. Uh, we're looking for some help, some hope, and some humor along the way, and this morning we have a very special guest, Dr. Naisha Black. Naisha, Hello, welcome. Art. Hey, thanks for getting up and coming in. Thank uh, you for having me. Yeah, I didn't realize when we set the date that this was going to be a holiday. Well, that's uh, why I said yes, because... I was off. I'm off work today. Okay, I you know because now in hindsight I was thinking, boy, it weirdly would have been clever mm-hmm. to have an African American woman mm-hmm. in to do a podcast on the celebration of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. Right. But I'm not that smart, <laughs> and I didn't realize it. But you're here. I am glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming. And uh, along those lines, there we could even go deeper because uh, your your doctorate is in what. In sociology and demography. Okay. So I'm going to make a guess that you are interested in a lot of things that have to do with the venues and settings that Dr. King worked in. I definitely am. I am interested in the civil rights movement in general. And actually, I think it plays a part in why I'm still in Birmingham. I see the history of this city in the state as a cultural asset. And And I'm... I'm very like honored to be adjacent to it because I feel like I'm in a constant state of learning. Okay, so you you said a cultural asset. Mm-hmm. Can we go deeper about that sure. at some point? Okay, so we're going to come back to that. Ronnie, Ronnie's our producer. Ronnie Gatry's here. Ronnie, would you remind me to come back to that? Uh, yes, I will. And the reason Ronnie sounds so clear today is that we have mic'd him up. We normally mute him. Uh, for good reasons. For good reasons. <laughs> but uh, we have specifically mic'd him up today because Ronnie is a bit of a hip-hop uh, aficionado. Is that fair? Uh, that's that's a stretch. But, that's a stretch. Well, uh, Ronnie's also a nine, so he would say that's right. a stretch. <laughs> definitely okay. hip-hop influence. Okay. <laughs> and, and Dr. Black actually has taught a course at the University of Alabama, Birmingham in the past. And what was the name of that course? The sociology of hip hop. The sociology of hip hop. So when I told Ronnie that, he freaked out. And he said, I got to be there. I said, well, Ronnie, you're the producer. You're <laughs> always there. But do you, would you like to take a part in the podcast? Uh, absolutely. I'm honored. Thank okay. you. Yeah. So we're going to turn it over to him a little bit uh, so he can interview Dr. Black. Because as much as I have an appreciation for hip hop, I am not an aficionado. <laughs> so we're going to do it that way. Okay. But I want to get back to the cultural asset because that's an interesting way to put this. Okay. So you live here in Birmingham. In fact, you just bought a home. I did. Your first home? Yes, this is my first full week in the home because I went to Vegas um, right after I moved in. Art helped me move in. And broke broke your glass table. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, I I stayed at your home for a weekend for Mm -hmm. the house that these two rambunctious dogs. Well, (laughs) one is rambunctious. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, Jasper's a little bit of a problem. We snuck that one in on you, so. 
Um, yeah, I mean, shoot up, Mike. Oh goodness! Oh, she's showing me evidence <laughs> wow. of where the. Oh my gosh! <laughs> don't don't tell Carrie because she'll freak. Okay. I think it's funny, but yeah. I'm glad I got him. He got my shoes too. Uh, yeah. Well, I warned you not you to leave any really items. Did. Yes. You said remote control and telephone. I should have said anything. Anything. Everything. <laughs> okay. Well. Okay. So I owe you for the glass table. No. Your shoes <laughs> and the box. Ronnie, write those down. Okay. Uh, so wow. All right, um, and I'm envious of the house, by the way, because I grew up about two miles from there in a somewhat similar setting. Mm-hmm. With because your your home is a historic home, it is in Birmingham, right? It is over a hundred years old. It was well, I I see a little bit of variation in when it was built, but it 1914, 1917. Yeah, was built, um, and I, I, I of course. Anyone who lives in Birmingham knows those little emblems on the house that have that historic register. Mm. But I thought it was just something like through the state or through the city. But it is on a national historic register. And one of the insurance agents that um, I got a quote from, actually, Mike Collins, Mm -hmm. um, he told me that only one insurer was willing to insure the home because of that historical status. I don't think it's a historic, like, I don't think it's legitimately historical. But he did send me the documents. Yeah. You know, speaking of history, like, one of the things that struck me is that black people were not allowed to live in that home. home. And it explicitly said it on the original. Really? Yes. It said this lot is only, can only be occupied by white persons unless there's a servant who is non-white, but they must live on separate quarters. Okay, is I mean I'm gonna I'm I'm getting emotional, uh-huh. okay, because I lived in that area, you know, growing up, mm-hmm. and so I don't know what all the emotions are, but there's pretty serious ones going on right now. But I guess from a logic standpoint, I'm gonna go back to my head so I don't cry. Okay, mm-hmm. from a logic standpoint. Uh, when you hear things like that, they're in black and white on paper. Right. And then some of us are still trying to say, well, you know, I, I, you know, we solved all that mm-hmm. in the Civil War. We solved all that with Jim Crow when we got rid. But you're seeing things in black and white on paper where systemically people were just in, uh, not included. Right. Right. And I think the more we see those realities, the more we know there's still some more nuanced, deeper work to do. Right. And, um, so, well, thanks for sharing that part well, of it. you know, I'm a sociologist, and one of the things that struck me is I knew it intellectually. It's one yeah. thing to teach it and yeah. to read about it, but to also see it, you know. Yeah. And, and feel it. Yeah, it, it made it more real to me. So I know what you mean in yeah. some respect by, like, you know, you're aware of it in mm-hmm. some way, but then when you, like, purchase a home that had that, that restriction, that, that restriction, yeah. it just it, it made it less intellectual. Yeah. And, for it, me. and it can be so, it can seem so uh, benign, but it's just it really is evil. Right. And um, it's funny though, just thinking about what we just said. I from a, from an enneagram consciousness perspective, one of the things that the wisdom tradition teaches is that all human beings are made with three intelligence centers: the mind, the thinking, the emotions, the heart, and the will, the gut, or the instinctive. Mm-hmm. And and so, it, it just as you and I were just talking just there, I thought, well, there's an example right there. Of you could know something logically, but if you don't, if it doesn't hit your emotions or it doesn't get your gut, then you you might not really know it. Does, it, does that make any sense? And you might not then do something about it. I get what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. Okay. 
Well, well, we may turn back to that. Uh, but you're not from Birmingham. I am not. Yeah, tell us where you grew up. So I grew up in Lamar County. Mm-hmm. It's uh, two hours west of here on the Mississippi state line. So I split my childhood evenly between two towns in that county, Vernon yeah. and Sullivan, Sullivan, Alabama. Alabama. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was life like uh, for you growing up during that time? Because that's roughly the edge of the Black Belt, is that it's a little further out from the Black Belt, it's, right? So I describe it as the gateway between the Black Belt and um, the Appalachian Mountains. Okay. I mean, um, you know, North Alabama is hilly and mm-hmm. foothills. And so if you drive 30 minutes north, the it becomes a little bit more hilly. It's uh, basically all white. And then if you drive 30 minutes south, then the land becomes a little flatter. Um, the soil is more rich and it's almost all black. Right. And so um, I think that growing up there has shaped, you know, my experience of, you know, of, as an Alabamian. I know that, um, you know, a lot of people from rural Alabama, if they're black, typically are from the black belt. But, you know, I'm kind of in the juxtaposition between the two. Okay, interesting. So well, when you grew up, as you were growing up, um what was life like in terms of expectations for education for you? You know, so my parents divorced when I was about eight, but um, my dad, um, I spent a lot of time with him uh, when they were together and, and, and when they divorced too, but when we were in the household together and, and he has, he's bipolar and so because of his mental health condition, he didn't, like, hold jobs consistently. And so at one point, he stayed home, you know, with me. And um, he he's a very intelligent man. Um, I think a lot of people with mental illness, yes. there's a, like, yes. this fine line between very genius and, yes. and, and, yeah. um, and bipolar and being bipolar. And I mentioned him because um, he shaped me a lot. I think he allow having that experience um allows me to see people in a very complex and complicated way like I can you know disentangle those things but I say that to say he he spent a lot of time you know um working with me even before I went to school before I went to kindergarten just making sure I knew things and so I think I was a little bit more advanced than some children um, at that level, I'm not in any way, it you know, advanced compared to people now. But I, I um, didn't have a lot of problems in school. Mm-hmm. You had a little bit of a head start. I yeah. had a head start, and I and I credit him for that. Um, so, I mean, there was an expectation to do well in school because my parents knew I could. You know, okay. they saw that. You know that I was not. A dumb person, I guess. I I, I don't want to. That sounds like a negative connotation. I probably shouldn't use that word, but they um, they had high expectations because they saw what I could do, and um, but yet still and yet there was no expectation to go to college. Okay, I, that that you know was not you know, something that was constantly yeah. spoken of. Had, th- had, was it yet a family norm? No, it wasn't a family norm per se. Um, 
And I think it was also the time. I mean, I grew up in the nineties, mm-hmm. early two thousands and, you know, rural Alabama is very working class. Um, so it wasn't only a family norm. I think it wasn't a, a norm in the town. Yeah. You know, um, I think we were, my generation was the first generation from that area and, and to go to college. There were college educated people in the family. Um, my grandfather was educated and, and, you know, my brother who is about eight, nine years older than me, he went to college. Uh, so I started to see um, that, but I mean, it, it, it just wasn't a part of everyday conversation. So, I mean, while I was in, you know, secondary school, I mean, I was expected to do well, but um, there was no, like, talk of after that. I don't think that they, particularly my mother, by that time I got a little older, had the, um, she just had, she had never been to college, so she didn't know how to coach me through it. So yeah. she just let me figure out things on my own. So where did you end up going to college? So I started out at Shelton State um, in Tuscaloosa, and then I transferred to the University of Alabama. Roll Tide? Yes, Roll Tide. Were you really disappointed last Monday night? You didn't care that much, did you? You know, I used to be a very zealous Alabama football fan. And, you know, yeah. it's not that I'm not a fan anymore. It just doesn't take up my life the way it used to. And so yeah. I do not watch the games anymore, which is very bizarre. It's very bizarre. No, you should see art space right now. Yeah, I'm, um, I was just, I was trying to consider if we could continue to have a relationship. Cause <laughs> I, I, mean, I know. Uh, I have another friend who's <laughs> the same way. When I was at Penn State, though, I had, I think because I was so homesick, I, like, linked into Alabama football with the, you know, with this passion. And I mean, I was almost like that upright man who was poisoning trees in (laughs) in, in Auburn or whatever his name was. I wanted to send money to his, um, you know, get out of jail. (laughs) I mean, it was crazy. I was, I was wild. Like I was, I would, I would just be so passionate during these games. And then when I returned home, it was just everywhere. I'm like, we still have grocery taxes on food here. Like, I just got annoyed by, like, all these structural yeah. things. I think it was just so cerebral at the time, and I've calmed down. Yeah. These yeah. For those that are not aware that, listen, uh, Harvey Updike was, a, shall we say, an extreme Alabama fan that uh, decided to poison the famous oak trees at Tumors Corner in Auburn because Auburn's our big rival. And, of course, you know, when you lose a game, you need to poison oak trees, right? right. So, yeah. I do not condone his behavior, by the way. I was just making a point, yeah. an anecdotal that, point. That you were that far off. I was yeah. pretty <laughs> zealous. It was it was extreme. Yeah. All right, so uh, Shelton State, then to the university, the University of Alabama. And what were you studying there? So I majored in economics, and I had a minor in sociology. Did you have any clue then of what your career path was going to be in terms of demography and sociology? No. I, you know, many people, when they're growing up, it's like, oh, I want to be a lawyer or an accountant or a teacher. It seems like those were the only three careers that, you know, people would say they wanted to do. I never knew what I wanted to be. But I did have questions, and so um, I – I took this economic class at Shelton State, and we had this very, you know, lively professor there. I can't remember his name, but I can see his stature. He was a tall, skinny man. And he, um, he, I felt like he was answering all my questions about growing up in in Alabama. Like, 
while there was like, you know, poverty and and just understanding inequality, um, you know, understanding economic development and things of that nature. And so I pursued my major because I was seeking an answer to questions that weren't quite well formed, but mm-hmm. they were there were these were ideas there. I had. And then I took this sociology class also at Shelton State. We had this horrible teacher, <laughs> but I read the book there you and go. I thought the book was interesting. Yeah. And that's how I ended up um, minoring in the course or in, in the, um, the discipline. And I felt like sociology was doing a better job of answering the questions I had at the time. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I ended up um, pursuing it as a graduate degree. Yeah. You, you mentioned questions a minute ago. You do. You have really good questions. You, you just a question ask. Now, I know that's part of the discipline of what you do. You have to form them in, you know, even in, in formal ways, right? But you just in just in conversations, just over dinner or just relaxing, you, know, you just ask really good questions. I, I, you know that, don't you? I do now. You do now? <laughs> well, I mean, I met you through Carrie, my wife, and yes. people that have listened to past episodes now know who she is because everybody that comes on here mentioned either Carrie or Dixon Prevention and – so now we've taken care of that with a prior podcast, but I met you through her because she asked you to come and do some work for the coalition, yes. right? And then personally, we began to chat a little bit, and I just noticed, and she had always told me this about you, she said, nice is the easiest person to be with, and she asked the best questions. Oh, wow. Yeah, So, but I've noticed that. So part of that may be, I mean, it sounded like that was even part of you before you went into this field, mm-hmm. but I'm assuming as a demographer interested in sociology, you actually had to learn how to form really good sets of questions. Uh, I mean, that's a part of being a researcher. Yeah. I mean, when you look at, um, I mean, we still follow the scientific method. That's typically people you uh, learn that in a hard science setting, in a, you know, in their anatomy class, their, some sort of science class. But, I mean, all researchers use that um, process. And the first step of um, the research method is yeah. is to ask a question you either made an observation and you form a question and then you go through the process of scientifically solving it so but i do think that i had some bit of that before sounds like it as i reflect on it i I, I think i just i was in an environment when i was trying to understand yeah you know how did it come to be yeah that's actually why i kind of thought when i met you and was around you the first year or two i kept thinking is she a type five on the enneagram because she seems to want a deeper understanding of everything Mm -hmm. which it doesn't mean that all types don't maybe want that but fives especially seem to major in that they seem to resonate with that ability they just really want to go deeper and deeper they they don't want to know what they want to know the why behind it right yeah i think einstein said any fool can know but to know why is really deep. And that's kind of like what I see in you. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean you're five. We'll right. talk about that. Because you actually tested as a type nine. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. But you said that you wondered if there wasn't some cultural and or current uh, event overlay of the last year or two that might have skewed your answers that make you look like a nine. Right. You remember that? I do remember yeah. that. So tell us a little bit about what you think may have been going on, as if we don't know the last couple of years. But besides pandemic, we were coming out of the Trump years and trying to adjust, and everybody's trying to get kind of reground themselves in some way or another, right? Mm-hmm. So tell me what, for you, you think were life influences that may have skewed the way the test showed. I think 
pre-Trump uh, and especially pre-January 6th yeah. of last year, um, I had this identity or this strong sense of trying to understand the world and, um, you know, trying to solve problems related to, you know, major issues, right? Like on, on a small scale and, and, you know, you're always grappling with those questions when you're teaching and when you're a researcher as well. But I just didn't want to, you know, talk about them in a classroom setting or write about them. I wanted to, um, you know, be a problem solver. And I think that um, the last administration made me realize that I don't know if this is worth solving. I don't know if I started to reevaluate um, if it was if I had the will to even participate in solving problems and if it was um, an exercise in futility, if you mm. can say, because yeah. I felt like we had gone so far. Yeah. And um, speaks, speaks. When I hear you say that, uh, for me, it sounds like uh, the idea of hope or no hope in a way. Yeah. I mean, which I understand. I mean, I. Uh, when you when you string the three triumvirates together of faith, hope, and love, I may struggle in any of them, but the hope is the one I continually struggle with, have all my life, and it's weird. Uh, I trust pretty well faith. I love decently now. I've, I've matured, but hope is a thing for me, and it's not just the last couple of years I struggle, but I could see why people lately would struggle in that sense. Does that, does that make any does that resonate at all with? The idea of, uh, is it worth trying to even solve these things? Can we ever get it to a place that is hopeful? Perhaps I did lose some hope. Um, you know, when I think of the word hope, I always go back to the scripture and like, you know, work without faith. Is, faith mm. without work is dead. Yeah. And so like you have to have the combination of the two. And, and maybe I wasn't doing the work. I mean, maybe, you know, we as a collective, as a society, we're not doing the work. Um, somebody's working on something, though. Yeah, <laughs> like, something's going on. Something's going on, and yeah. I just, I just, I, I think I was just cognitively tired, you know, of it. Um, and then, I mean, I was always someone who was engaged in the news, and it's not to say that that's, you know, important or or highbrow or anything like that, but I'm I was one who always seek information. I always wanted to understand. I always uh, wanted to know what was going on. Mm -hmm. And now I'm like, I don't care. Yeah. I don't I don't care as much. Um, I I just felt like it it created more stress and anxiety. Yeah. And maybe it was because of the way the media, you know, told stories, and it was just this constant you know, bombardment, of, yeah. you know, trying to, you know, get, <laughs> do this analysis of what was going on. But I think it just, yeah. I just got tired of it. It's it's like the saying I saw on the coffee cup the other day. It's, it's been one of those days for about three years now. <laughs> uh, and so you got this overlay of pandemic fatigue, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, the Trump administration, January 6th. And it seems like, you know, we're all tired of trying to find our footing. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know what, I think I'll just check out for a while. And the pandemic yeah. and the impact that it has had on me has been real, and I suspect for others, like, I, um, 
I definitely experienced depression during that time and was able to recognize that, you know, it wasn't my first episode of depression um, and was actually clinically diagnosed with depression for the first time during the pandemic. And so I'm, I'm pretty sure that probably shaped the way yeah. that I engage in some of the yeah. questions that were asked as well. Yeah, I mean, you're right. No, even if an individual or a family wasn't directly economically handicapped, by the pandemic, although many were, right? Or even if you didn't lose a job or you, even if you were able to maintain certain relationships during it, every one of us was impacted in some way that was, was really significant by this pandemic. And some of us didn't quite recognize it because it wasn't so direct, right? Well, I mean, there was this economic shock for many people for mm-hmm. sure. And yeah. I still think about, and from a sociological perspective, and then just as a person, like how did people survived during Mm -hmm. that time like uh, I mean I'm very empathetic to people who have these economic shots and I'm not you know um uh, unique to those experiences as well I'm not I mean we all can be vulnerable to that but for me it was more about the isolation I'm um, a single woman Mm -hmm. with no children and so Mm -hmm. A lot of the um, interaction I get from society is through work. It's cut right? off. It's, cut it off. was cut off. So right. like, and and then we didn't know what was going to happen. And so like, I'm at home by myself, and I could find myself not speaking to people for a while. Yeah. So I think that 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 the way I was able to um, tie the line, but for the depression for me was that when I had that experience before is um is when i was in graduate school and again by Mm. myself isolated and you know just trying to bust out a paper or study for an exam or whatever so now i um you know you get older and you're able to see patterns down know that like long bouts of isolation it's it's just not healthy like uh, one of the things that i always um, tell my students like the first day of intro to sociology is like we are social beings right like if you put all of us on an island by ourselves, like we wouldn't make it. Yeah, you know, there's some, there's very um, there's value in being engaged, you know, in conversation, being proximate to other human beings. So yeah, and there's a lot of deficit of that. Still, people struggling, especially with the reuptake of the uh, Omicron variant, and people are trying to figure out again how much isolation is healthy for me. Right. Yeah. So you went uh, on from the University of Alabama to Penn State to get your what became your PhD. Yes. Right? And so then the focus became, you started focusing a little bit at that point in terms of demography and sociology and that yes. type of thing? While I was there, I studied health disparities, though, um, but still with a historical and a um, contextual lens. So mm-hmm. I particularly were interested in how, like, history shaped contemporary um, disparities in black and white mortality outcomes. Okay. So I don't do much of that research anymore, but that was, that was my life for a while. Yeah. So in part of, I know here you are connected to the, uh, Birmingham civil rights Institute. Mm -hmm. What role do you play there? I'm on the board of directors. Okay. All right. So it's especially poignant today. Yes. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, anything special going on in Birmingham today? Well, of course, the Civil Rights Institute has some events, um, and I'm sure they're going on right now. So they um, typically is free on Mm -hmm. MLK Day, and so they do these um, guided tours and 
So Ronnie, there's something going on, right? Yeah, uh, there's the the walk. I, I don't I don't know if it's affiliated with the BCRI, but yeah, um, yeah. But as far as Martin Luther King Jr. Oh, Day, sure. yeah. yeah. So you'll be participating in that. Absolutely. Later. That's why you're dressed up. Correct. Uh, he, Ronnie <laughs> looks like a dude today. <laughs> yeah, normally I'm in like uh, sweatpants and a t-shirt. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So where's the walk? Where's it start? Where does uh, it go? It starts at City Hall. Yeah. And um, goodness, Art, I'm not sure of the route. Yeah. But I know it ends in the civil right dis- civil rights district somewhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. cool. Great. And I think there was a five k this weekend as well. Yes, yeah, the drum run. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. Well, this sounds like a good time, really, Ronnie. I think maybe to segue for this part. Um, you sure? Yeah, I think so. It's a good uh, po- just to shift for a minute in the podcast to uh, let you talk to Naisha about the course she did and how that flows out, however you guys want to do. And I'll just sit back and listen. Okay. okay. Well, uh, in, in keeping with, uh, your journey, I guess, from a academic perspective, um, from, from Penn state where we kind of left off, um, I'm, I'm assuming your next step was teaching at UAB. No, actually I was a postdoc in this college of medicine at UAB. Okay. So it was a um, health uh, center outcomes post talk, and it wasn't a good fit for me. I, I realized I didn't want to do patient centered outcome research, and so I made a uh, exit. Um, I think I learned from being in grad school when to cut your losses. That I would, I, I I was knew I did not want to you know pursue a line of research just because it was convenient. And so um, there was an opportunity in the sociology department at UAB. And um, I taught two courses, I believe, when I was in graduate school, and I really enjoyed it. So um, I taught for U- at UAB for about two, two and a half years. And I still teach a course occasionally, but online format. But I was in the classroom. Um, I had four courses a semester, so it was quite a load. <laughs> But I think over my uh, time there, I, I taught about a thousand, I taught over a thousand students. Oh, wow. And so I don't know if I will ever return in a classroom t- at that same capacity again. But um, when I, I'm sure when I get older and reflect on my career, I, I'm really appreciative I had that experience because okay. I learned a lot about myself and a lot, you know, I mean, when you are, a sociologist, you know, you're applying theory and, and, um, you know, it's, it's more, it's kind of like applied history, but I learned a lot as well because, um, it's hard to talk about con is concepts without context. And so what I realized is that students didn't know history very well. And I am not a historian by, um, training. And so in order to feel confident about what I was teaching, I, I had to go back and learn a lot of history, like more of the details of it. So I, I really enjoyed that experience because I taught, I learned a lot as well. Nice. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, forgive me for being selfish here, but, but I did want to um, offer some level of respect to your career. Mm-hmm. But uh, if we could, tell me how you got to hip hop. <laughs> you know, it, this is not a, an impressive story at all. It was simply a course that had been on a roster that a former professor had taught, but he retired. And um, the undergraduate director at the time, or he still is the undergraduate director, 
uh, he came to me and asked me if I would be willing to teach it because it was just a course on the books that hadn't been taught in a while. And no one else felt comfortable teaching it. And I was like, give it to me. So, yeah, it's, it became one of my favorite courses. Probably my favorite course to teach. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I'll be honest, uh, Art, <laughs> a while ago when we were planning to have you on, sent me a link uh, to, I think, one of your courses. And I, I did not watch it, so forgive me for that. <laughs> I didn't know there was a link to one of my courses. Well, Have I, I said too much, I, Art? <laughs> no, I think it was probably the syllabus. Okay. Uh, oh, that. okay. I thought yeah, it was yeah, like... Yeah. Yeah. A link to a Zoom or you something. You don't listen to my <laughs> okay. details. What'd you say, Art? You and my wife don't listen to my details. I, mean, I really have something to say. Okay. <laughs> well, uh, considering that, uh, can you, can you, do you mind giving us a breakdown on like how that course is structured and uh, what someone like me could, uh, could potentially learn? From your course. You could probably teach the course. Oh, stop. No, <laughs> seriously, like, I don't consider myself to be an expert in hip-hop. Like, okay. I'm not the type of person who knows every lyrics to the, all the songs. And even the classics, like, I, of course, know the beats. And I can know, <laughs> like, a few lines here and there. Um, unless it's Yo Gotti, but, or Young Dolph, <laughs> of course. So, like, I love Memphis rap. That's, okay. That's my thing. But, um... Rest in peace, Sean Dolph, by the way. So I teach it from a sociological perspective. I'm like, all music genres come from um, a historical, you know, underpinning, right? Like, and hip-hop is no different. Um, you know, you have to understand what was going on in New York at the time and in American history to really appreciate the history of hip-hop. So... What you had was this early deindustrialization in New York City, particularly the Bronx, where it was once like this, you know, filled with apartment dwellings of immigrants, right? And as the United States became, you know, well, the, the U.S. government cre created su suburbs, right? Um, the white immigrant communities were leaving and going to the suburbs because the federal government bestowed that privilege to them um, through subsidized loans um, and um, redlining. Um, you also had this influx of a new immigrant group coming. So you had like Africans from the, you know, people of African descent from the Caribbeans, African-Americans and Puerto Ricans. So basically you have this pan-African diaspora, right, descending on the Bronx and um, but this was at the same time where there was um, less jobs available. So there was urban decay. Um, and so you had people who were, you know, just willing to have wanting to have fun. So you had these young teenagers who was really bringing on like the beats and the movement of Jamaica, like, you know, DJ Cole cool Herc. <laughs> and, you know, he had access to the equipment. Um, to make the beats and to um, really it was coming off of the of disco which was short-lived right but you know you think studio is it studio 58 54, 54 yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and one of the things about disco is it has these long breaks in the middle and this is like this long interlude with just the music and and the teenagers they really enjoy 
the segments of the instrumental and DJ Cool Herc was taking these records and he was blending the instrumental part of the disco tracks. And that's why they call it the breaks. That's, you know, one of the main aspects of hip hop music, um, or at least the traditional music. And so you also have these fires going on in the Bronx. So he's moving regularly, you know, they're trying to come up with money. So they're having these parties, um, which he, you know, is one of the only persons in the neighborhood who has this equipment, but you know, I think you have like the hot summer of 77 or mm-hmm. something like that, or maybe right. before 77, um, in which then a lot of people got access to this equipment. And it's also like based in, you know, a little bit of, um, of gang culture. Um, and when I think, and when I say gang is not necessarily like violence, um, per se, but, also, like, this retaliation of gang culture as well. Like, how can we, you know, bring people together and do something a little bit more fun? And and um, and so, I, I mean, we could go on and on, but, sure. you know, it just started out as a party music initially, and then it became, like, this soundtrack or somewhat of a... Um, an archive of what was going on in the community at that time because if you look at the early um records like the first hip-hop record was considered um was it i can't think of the name of it right now but i'm thinking of the beat uh, uh, are you talking about like socially, like no, well, popular culture? Because Sh- Sugar Hill Gang, gets yeah, a lot the of credit. Sugar Hill Gang, yeah, they get get a lot of credit, even though like yeah, so <laughs> that's the one that was the, one of the most commercially successful. Correct, ones. yeah, that's the but, term I was looking for. But then when you look at some of their later records, they're starting to talk more about social conditions of the neighborhood. Correct, and so I think that is why hip hop music has survived outside of maybe like the disco genre is because it became this political sounding board for people who really were marginalized and didn't have a voice um, in talking about their community. Like their community was talked about from the lens of like mainstream America and it was seen as the subculture. But now um, it has evolved because of the political aspect that it had, but that, in my opinion, has been lost tremendously Uh-oh, as, you know, the it's become more of a commodity. Sure. And you, you got your you got your Kendrick Lamars and the newer generation who have, I guess, are influenced by that a little bit. But by and large, we're in the slime rap era where, mm-hmm. <laughs> where uh, you know, I guess the praising of uh, selling, using and abusing drugs is is the kind of like the feel right now which you know I, I it's hard for me to get into that <laughs> but yeah. uh but I'm with you though uh one, one thing I want to share with you that I thought about when art uh, extended this opportunity was um I, I started thinking about my own uh maturation in hip-hop and I, I just I, I'll never forget um I got a tribe called quest cassette tape low end theory uh that I wish I still had to this day but I just <laughs> Uh, I was very young at the time. I was probably shouldn't have been listening to it. <laughs> but uh, I just remember being so moved by just what I was experiencing. And that served as kind of like my gateway to the art, to the culture, right? And 
you know, you, you look at it from a bird's eye perspective, little kid in, in Irondale, Alabama, listening to Tribe Called Quest, like how does this even happen? Yeah. But um, I guess it, it it shows the influence of hip hop, you know, not only on a national level, but even on a global level. You you can go so many parts of this earth and mention Tribe Called Quest and you're going to get a reaction. Right. Yeah. So um, anyway, uh, I'll, <laughs> I'll try to make this brief because I can spend a lot of time here. Uh, I remember, uh, you know, as technology advanced, getting the compact disc and things like that, uh, I, I, I came across this Gangstar Moment of Truth CD, which is one of my favorite albums, like, across genre ever. And uh, I was blasting my room, and, you know, I, my mom comes in, and, you know, all she could hear is the cuss words, right? So, so of course, she, you know, she she hijacks my Gangstar CD and asks if I have any more. And, of course, at this time, I'd accumulated tons. Mm-hmm. So my parents take all my stuff. Oh, no. Yeah, yeah, it was, a, it was a down point in my life. My parents take all my stuff. Uh, they never really sat down with me and talked about it, but it was just like uh, the music you're listening to is satanic. It's, um, it's cussing. And you shouldn't be listening to it. That's not what we we want for you as a young man. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I'm a parent now, so I kind of get it. <laughs> but uh, the the interesting thing is during that period of time where you know my all of my hip hop uh, media was taken from me, I just had this force within me. Like I still had to. I mean, it kind of sounds like a drug, but <laughs> but I just had to get more. So you know, I would I would borrow from friends, and I would tell everybody. I had a lot of had a lot of sympathy from my friends about. Oh man, you don't have anything. Yeah, my parents look everything, dude. Like ah, whatever. But uh, no, I wanted to share that just because even even now, like current <laughs> current age, Ronnie still listening to it uh, on a daily basis, uh, but. One of the things my my wife, who does not listen to to, to rap or hip hop at all, one of the things that that offered some mystique about me was she was so curious. Like, you you don't carry yourself like I would think a rapper would. And but you're uh, not a rapper. Exactly, exactly. Well, there's that, there's that, and I'm far from it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, she was just so, especially when we were dating, right? Because I was I was a lot more careless then, and I. <laughs> I would just listen to whatever I wanted to, you know, not even thinking about how she was taking it, assuming everyone was was absorbing in the capacity that I was. But um, one of the things that she still is mystified to this day is like, how can you listen to this stuff? But in real life, you you are so different from that. And um, one of the things I share with her is like, well, it's it's a it's a source of entertainment for me, you know, uh, for for starters. But. I think hip hop conceptually has gotten such a bad, bad rap, pun intended, uh, just because of, you know, the, you know, maybe it's the beats, maybe it's the harsh, maybe it's the bravado, maybe it is a links to gang violence and things like that, which I don't think is fair to the culture, but I want to pause there and I want to get your viewpoint on some of the concerns that I shared with you and just, just see if we're on the same level in that capacity. And there was a lot, so I went in like ten different places. So just if you want to take little bites of that, that's fine. I think that hip hop has a negative connotation because it's a black art form. Mm. I was just say it as simple talk as about that. it. Talk about um, it. <laughs> I mean, there are these, you know, it's very profanity laced. It's it's hypersexualized. It's um, it has all those. Uh, taboo things but i think is also a reflection of american culture i mean uh hip-hop is 
is uh, current in its current form is this articulation of the streams that we participate in as a society. I think it kind of like puts it in your face. But I do also think that there it it I think it's it's the soundtrack to capitalism in a lot of ways. Um, and so I am very um, what's the word dismayed in per se when when I hear like mainstream America talk negatively about it. I'm like, this is the soundtrack to what America is like in its in its rawness and its you know in its all of its good, bad, and ugly. I mean, we, we, we are over-sexualized society. We, we, we're a society who's obsessed with money. We are uh, all those things. So in, in hip-hop is, a, is the conversation piece around that. So I think when we are um, critiquing hip-hop, we are essentially critiquing American culture. Uh, so I say that in, in, uh, in part, but... It's just so much beauty in the genre at the same time. I, again, when you look at its origins and how DJ Cool Herc, you know, really created this, and there's no arguments around if he did, but if you look at the influence of African Lubada and, and you know, and, and how they made something out of nothing. And I think that's what, like, I'm a person who is very proud to be black. Like, you know, we're talking, today is MLK Day, but... I mean, he, he's the figurehead of the mu- movement. But one of the things that makes me so proud to be black is that so, all the, uh, there's so much ingenuity that has come out of black culture that is some of the most portable and exported parts of American culture, right? If you, if you go to a club in South Korea or, 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 or like I've been to Beijing and Shanghai, like, they're playing hip hop music. I mean, and and you go to Ghana, like they're playing hip hop music. Like when you, and so I I think there's a lot of pride in that. I mean, I'm not a New Yorker or anything, but um, and it's not just hip hop music. It's also like gospel music and and you know the blues and jazz and all those things. Rock, and so, yeah. um. I think that the preservation of hip hop music is important. I do think there needs to be more versatility in the music though. Agreed. But I think that is has been shaped by the corporatization of the music. Um, especially in the nineties and the two thousands that has shaped what um sells in hip hop music. And so I'm okay with the the iconography, the like the the icons or the uh, images of of the oversexualization and discussion of drugs, because there were people who had that experience. Like we cannot set up an American society and culture that has marginalized Black people, especially um, due to redlining. Like we we talked about the house earlier that I just moved into, but. Um, that his, you know, the CIA and and the trafficking and the collusion around drugs and the crack epidemic and and I mean, wh- what you have if you have that in the eighties, you have people who grew up in the nineties and two thousands who are going to talk about it, like you're we're we're talking negatively or think that is a 
um, deviant behavior to talk about people who sold drugs, but these are people who came up in society in which there were few job opportunities and poverty was commonplace, and that was not by accident. Like, so I'm, I think there's a place for people to talk about those experiences, but not everybody had those experiences, right? And so we do need versatility in the music of people talking about their experiences from, you know, multiple perspectives. But I think that the drugs and the set sell, and I think that's what's pushed. You talked about the format of the music. Like you went from a cassette tape with a, with a track called Quest into a CD, but now we... Like, those are obsolete. Those are going by way of the eight tracks, well, right? Yeah, like, but, but, you know, records are coming back. Records <laughs> but, but, are, but eight but tracks are large, not. Right. And, I don't think those will come back. No, I don't think eight tracks will come back. But so, records are So it's hopeless now. for me. That's what you got. Art was, art was, was holding a, on. You mentioned that on one of our recordings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I say that, like, there's just so much portability with music. Like, technology has shifted. I remember... We were one of the first people to in my community probably get a computer. And I used to spend so much time on that computer and, you know, downloading Limeware and Napster, Napster whatever yeah. it was. <laughs> I'm glad that we didn't get sued. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like you, you could then like pick and choose which music you listen to. Do you remember when an album release party was this monumental oh, event, right? Like yes. it was this huge thing. And now all you have to do is upload the music to a jump drive and they drop it on Apple music. Right. But I'm, I'm saying this to say that I hope that the technological shift in music will give us access to music. That's more versatile. And it's not just something that's underground, you know, it's just not some niche. That is something that, we can um, have that's playing on the radio as well. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah, I think that things that are associated with blackness are stigmatized, and that's probably the reaction. Yeah. Yeah, even uh, even if it's, you know, it, it comes through the lens of another black person, <laughs> per se. Yeah. Or otherwise, I don't know. Goodness, very well put. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Can I, um, can I attend your class? <laughs> can attend it online okay yes. <laughs> or you can just read the syllabus that art gave i got you okay yeah. I, yeah i'm supposed to teach it this summer oh really mm -hmm. nice um gosh i know we're running on time here but I, i'm just so curious in talking about this class what what type of reception have you gotten particularly from the students that take it I mean, the students are connoisseurs of the music. Like, so, so you don't have any outliers there? like. I mean, there's a few who say that they don't listen to it, but that's, that's not the norm. What I have noticed, though, like the first week of class, I asked them to send me a playlist of their favorite hip-hop songs. Like they each like submit a few songs, and I create a playlist for the whole class, right? So I think... Because of the evolution of the music and just, like, across times, like, cultures and, I mean, um, music is a node of culture, right? Like, and cultures blend. There's this, uh, there's an evolution of it that there's, 
so what the students are calling hip hop, I don't call hip hop. Like, uh, it's, it's just this, um, I guess this osmosis of pop and R and B and all these other genres. And, <laughs> and so that's what I have noticed among the students. Okay. You know, they, they are sending me things that I would not consider to be hip hop music. Gotcha. Okay. But you know, their reaction to the class, I don't think that they have thought deeply about it. Like, I mean, we do listen to music and know, and, and buy things like I have like, you know, the politics of hip hop. Of course we, the first in, intro to the class talking about the history like we read Jeff um, Chain's book "Can't Stop, Won't Stop," and oh. we start off talking about you know the Bronx and what was going on there at the time and how it shaped and formed the music. And they all and there's also this analogy to the blues and how it came out of the Delta, like the people there being these poor sharecroppers, and and they were just talking about the experience of being poor sharecroppers in Mississippi, right? And so we kind of juxtaposed the two and. And um, then we start talking about um, just sociological topics through the lens of hip hop music. So in a, in a intro class to sociology, you're going to talk about gender, you're going to talk about sex and marriage, you're going to talk about poverty, you're going to talk about, you know, those sorts of topics. And so we basically just talk through it through the format of the music. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So. It gets a little bit, bit deeper versus them just listening to it from the <laughs> point of consumption. Sure. And entertainment, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, um, thanks again for sharing that. Our, I've, I've got to stop here before I go off the deep end. I'm getting, I'm getting really close. I only have so much time. So. Okay. Hey, I was thinking <laughs> of something, though. Um, uh, Naisha mentioned that period of time when folks of uh, African descent coming from the Caribbean – and I think you mentioned Jamaica mm -hmm. in the beat. You got a little bit of connection to, don't you, to yeah. Jamaica? Well, not Jamaica. Uh -huh. uh, my uh, my mom my mom was born and raised in Nassau, Bahamas. Oh, nice. So uh, she, <laughs> as as this is being recorded, she is studying to get her citizenship, and um, I'll share the reasons with you at, off air. But uh, but yeah, so um, son That's of an amazing. immigrant. Yeah. Yeah. Um I think I was down in Boca Raton a few years ago when yeah. I went to their art museum and they had this um, exhibit of uh, Bahamanians. Is that Bahamians. Bahamians. Yeah. And, um, and it was a very struck about the history of, uh, of black Bahamians yeah. and them coming to Florida and stuff like that. And it's something that <sighs> I've wanted to dwell deeper into. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It was a major thing. Mm -hmm. I, I, I know, uh, my mom and I are doing this series that we, we don't know what we call it, but she and I are just having conversations mm -hmm. and she's talked, talks about in her youth, how coming to Florida was such a big deal. Mm -hmm. Like it was like, you've made it yeah. just for, a, you know, a two or three day visit in Florida. So I'm with you on that. Yeah. Uh, you, you know, I, I'll share this art. Goodness, Ronnie, restrain yourself. One of the things uh, I, from my mom says as young as one year old, uh, I was spending summers in Nassau from that young. I mean, of course, as I got mm -hmm. close to high school, those summers were more intermittent. But uh, anyway, I, one of the things about Nassau in particular is as I was as I was growing up, you know, I was just absorbing the culture there. And uh, <laughs> this is going to be my one, my one like dab play on hip hop. If I can, it's going to sound weird, but just walk with me. 
but uh, reggae influence, of course, a lot of culture reggae, as, as we call it, and uh, a lot of local reggae that was just that was sourced in Nassau in the sister islands, as we call it. And um, I, I would, I over the years, I gained an appreciation for it, and I knew when I was going to the Bahamas, I was going to absorb all that and just love it and enjoy it. It was kind of like an escape from the norm that I had when I was here. Mm-hmm. And so um, fast forward to, gosh, I was 18, 19 or whatever. I revisited for about a month this time. I hadn't been there in like four years. And so I get there and I was kind of upset because what I was expecting was some of that same like reggae, deep culture vibes. But now I'm hearing like the same hip hop I'm listening to back at home. And it was like, it was, it was cool, but it was yeah. like, no, like what happened to the culture? <laughs> like, right. not, not that I would necessarily wanted an escape from hip hop, mm-hmm. but I was a little disappointed because I was kind of banking on that, yeah. you know? So uh, talking about the influence of it, you go there now and I mean, you almost feel like you're in the U.S. in terms of a musical standpoint. You talked about Ghana, Beijing and all that. You're going to get the similar experience in Nassau, which is so crazy, but uh, anyway, just I, when you said that, I thought about that, and I felt like it was necessary I hope to share that, that, per, that local reggae. Oh my god! You know, it's it's being preserved. I hope so too. Yeah, I, oh. I, I, I fear the loss. Like you know, I was listening. I listen to gospel music on Sundays. That's kind of like my su- Sunday <laughs> ritual, and I don't like the new age gospel music because it's so blended with hip hop and R and B. Like I, I don't know whether I should twerk or if I should. <laughs> You know, praise the God. You know, praise the Lord. You, know? you talking to like, yeah, oh. like what is this? You know, but but anyways, but I like the old traditional hymns. You know, like you know, like the Mississippi mass, mass choir and yeah. stuff like that, Shirley like Shirley Caesar, Caesar yes. and the Pace Sisters. And I wonder, like, with and, and I'm, I'm the same way. I I don't go to you know church, the brick and mortar church, but. Like as religiosity reigns and church attendance decrease, like are we going to lose that traditional gospel culture? Good question. Because I hope. Good I, question. Because you know, cult. I mean, there are things do get lost. Yeah. And, you know, throughout human history, and so oh. those things may not be unique. Aisha, you're taking me to a dark place. Oh no, no, this is not. Don't be. Let me stop talking. No, you're good. <laughs> well, yeah, and that's probably actually a good place to rejoin what we talked about earlier, both from the phrase cultural asset. I want to yeah. go back to that, but also even your personal experience last year or two in terms of, you know, just some sense of hopeless or ho- is it hopeless? Because we're kind of talking about a lot of these bigger issues. And I, and I don't want to get out of here uh, because – in the short time we've done the podcast, you've listed about, you know, 3,000 places you've been to, right? Vegas right. and Beijing and right. Boca Raton. No, and, noted, yeah, Ghana. Ghana. <laughs> and that's one of, I want to talk about because you and the brother you mentioned earlier, I think, took a trip back to the African continent mm-hmm. this last year. We did. It was October. very impactful. And where did you go? We went to Ghana. Yeah. Went to West Africa. And he had to talk you into it, kind of. He really? did. Ghana's so, it, I mean, me. please... Keep in mind, we were still in a pandemic. Right. I mean, there's good reasons not to travel abroad. Yes. I didn't this year, and I was supposed to, and I wanted but to. But I'm so grateful we went. And and I, I would really say this trip started years ago. Um, my mom had never been to New Orleans, and um, we, we went to New Orleans for her birthday. 
and we went to the Whitney Plantation, which is an hour outside of New Orleans. And so we started kind of these historical treks together. And then we went to Charleston uh, in June or July, and we went to Sullivan's Island. And I was very struck by the lack of, like, acknowledgement of how, you know, uh, that it was the main port of for the slave ships for the slave ships. You know, South Carolina, and you know, it disembarked uh, a s- significant number of slaves into America, and so we, by going there, we just got this sense of yearning to learn more. And one day, my brother called me, and he was like, "Hey, I want to go to Ghana. Do you want to go?" I'm like, "No." It's I'm like he literally <laughs> wanted to leave and three weeks. I'm like, this is too short notice. And, you know, it's a pandemic and all these things. And I was driving to work one day and I was like, why not? So I called them back the next day. I said, yes, let's go. And we went for a week and we went to Accra, Kumasi, and then we went down to the Cape Coast, Mm -hmm. um, which is Elmina and and, uh, and for those that are listening that might not know, uh, can you share a little bit about the significance in terms of geographical location of Ghana and the slave trade and some of those places you went? Well, you know, probably from Senegal down into maybe even Angola is that was a part of the slave trade. I mean, I think historically we as Americans, we just think of slavery in the context of this country, but... You know, there's something upwards of 12 million African uh, enslaved Africans that was uh, brought to the Western Hemisphere. That included Brazil, which has the largest descendants of African people in outside of Africa. Right. Like people mm-hmm. don't realize that. I don't think right. all the fu- all these people that, that were affected that landed somewhere had to come from somewhere. Right. Yeah. And so um, we went there and I mean, the borders of what you of West African countries are relatively new. So um, they were marched out of the hinterlands and traded um, w- by um, African people who they're particularly like in the Ghana region, like the Ashanti people, um, they were traded for rum and, and um, guns and gunpowder. And they had, the people there were very wealthy because they had gold. And so they were trading with the Europeans with that. Um, but, I mean, there, were, there was a source of labor. And, you know, to build the Western Hemisphere, they had access to it through... The African continent, but it I I mentioned um, New Orleans and Charleston because I think my brother and I was seeking a more complete sense of the story, and by going to Ghana, I feel like I have a more complete sense of the story of what happened. Um, I think like we don't teach American history well, and we treat African American history as is separate from American history, and so you really have to seek it for yourself. And there's no way, better way to do that, to travel, if you have the ability to do that. And, uh, I mean, I left. It was a very cathartic experience. I mean, we 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 bawled. I'm not talking about just tears. We cried, like, lamented. Um, there's this place called Asamusu that's in between Kamasi and um, the Cape Coast where you stop and because and, and, when they were marching, the Africans out of the hinterlands like they followed this path of a river 
and there was this fork in the river where they would um, then like you know go about about an hour to the ocean but they were auctioned there and they were bathed and it was like the uh, the last bath mm. of ret- of no return and so like uh, people who are part of, who are uh, descendants of enslaved Africans in the Western Hemisphere, so people from Jamaica or Barbados, Brazil, wherever, can go back there and and bathe. And so we went into this river, and I just put my legs in and just kind of the the gods told us to like seek, you know, uh, understanding and to speak to our ancestors. And when like. We did that. It was such a spiritual experience, and we just started crying. Like, especially my brother, like, he just, like, it's just such a somber mm-hmm. and calming experience, and the water is rushing through your feet. And then they, they, and the gods told us that we were returning on behalf of our bloodline who never got to come back to their home. Which is, uh, when you say that, as soon as you were saying that, I'm like, uh in the Hebrew tradition, Psalm 126 talks about that from a Hebrew perspective of coming back from exiles. And some can, when it's time to go home, some couldn't go. Right. And so there's this, uh, it, it talks about those who sow together in tears will reap together in joy right. one day. But you got to go back sometimes. Yeah. 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 Wow. And, and when he said that, we, it, it was very visceral. Like I, but I do want you to share something you shared with Carrie and I after your trip, um, and I think it's in the same location, but in, in terms of the actual structure, maybe that was one of the last places that these people would have lived in on the African continent before they were shipped out, and you were in there, yeah. and there was a sense of this spiritual feeling, mm-hmm. visceral, that you're kind of been talking about that I think you're almost encountering even in New Orleans or Charleston in a way. Does that make any sense? Yeah, I mean, I think, like, human beings carry a historical memory. Well, when you were saying that, I was thinking of Eckhart Tolle's famous book, The Pain Body, this whole teaching of the pain body, that we, uh, contrary to, I think, what Western thinking is, that we actually do carry generations of pain forward into our physical body. Yeah, it's it's trauma, and... So the after we went to Asamusu, we went to Cape Coast and we stayed the night. And the next morning, we got up and we went to the castles that were first occupied by like the Portuguese and the Dutch, and the English had their own castle. And I mean, it first just started out as a storage facility for the goods that they traded. And then eventually came a story for people. And so when we were in the um, English castle, we went into this dungeon where they held the men. And when I walked into the dungeon, I immediately felt something come over me. Like it was, it was almost like I was dizzy, but just, or disoriented a little bit disoriented it was just this very almost like a trance and i'm usually when people say things like that i'm like oh they're so wacky like yeah they're a little off but this was real for me um and then the tour guide start telling us the significance of that dungeon or or the you know 
what the the place was used for. And he said that, you know, they had some uh, archaeologists come and excavate the the floor. And he said it was the only original floor in the whole dungeon. And he said that there were still human remains in it on the floor. Like there, the archaeologists' um, samples came back with like human feces and tears and hair samples and human cells. And and he said that you know some people still say that is a. Um, you know, like there's spirit still in here. And when he said that, I said, I can feel it. And and my brother said, I can feel it too. And there were three other people who were black Americans who were from Atlanta. And once we acknowledged that we were all feeling something, everybody who was there as a tour, we all start crying. Like, so you're having this experience with people you don't know who are there, you know, seeking like, you know, their own story or their own, like, sense of understanding um, who are, you know, having this cathartic experience of, you know, shedding these tears. And, uh, and, and you do carry this in your body. Like, I do think there's trauma that we, you know, there are studies that show that it's expressed in our genes. Yeah. That, you know, yeah, which is kind of, we're, we're now catching, it's almost like science is catching up to how creation works and how, and we're again, the Western mind has been a little bit more against that idea. I, and uh, frankly, I suspect from some theology that's off a little bit. I think does I'm that make sure sense? It is. Yeah. It does make sense. But I, I just felt the sense that I'm, my body felt that I'm a descendant of someone who came through that dungeon. That's yeah. what I felt when I was there. Yeah. So, I just came back with this, you know, just a better sense of identity, like. I, you know, you, like, I, I grew up on a stretch of land that my family was once enslaved on, like, coming from rural Alabama, I snet, I sat next to uh, students in high school whose family owned mine, I didn't know it at the time, I didn't know it until I was Whoa. in my 20s, my, you know, because I had a, my a person in my family who's a genealogist, and she is getting older, and she's starting to pass that information down and I'm like hold on I, these surnames like you have um uh people who have this white families who have the same surnames as the black families mm-hmm. and so that's not by coincidence so I feel like as I've gotten older I get a little piece of the puzzle each time so going to Ghana I don't I don't want to say it's the final piece of the puzzle mm. but it was a huge piece of the puzzle to have this understanding of what has happened yeah. throughout our did you ever know Jackie Clay at all over from, okay, yeah. I just thought uh, we had her dad here, did podcast him. Um, Jackie was part of the, uh, she was in York, Alabama for a okay. while, but she just actually just moved to New York. Uh, she's part of the uh, cultural heritage and artwork and museums and that type of thing. So I thought, man, and she is, her dad is uh, first cousin of Muhammad Ali, Clay. The Clay family, and so it's it's kind of an interesting intertwine. That's there. Fine. Yeah, he had it, roots in Alabama. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. I don't. Yeah, Tim. Tim moved here. Uh, gosh, I don't know when from Louisville, but Tim's dad and uh, Muhammad Ali, Cassius Clay's dad, were brothers in Are Louisville. Your friend, yeah, Tim. You know Tim. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Well, Jackie's that. Tim's daughter. Anyway, she probably doesn't appreciate me bringing her on the podcast, but we will see. Um, y- y'all would probably 
have some connections there from uh, from her work over in York okay. uh, as an artist too. Uh, okay, so we'll close by going back to this interesting phrase you brought out earlier about uh, cultural asset. Can you nuance that for us a little bit? You know, when you when you repeated it, I kind of shrieked because I don't want to commodity. You know, I don't want to make it a commodity, right? Like I feel like we use language we borrow from capitalism, and we're always trying asset. to pack, package and sell it, and so. I'm, I want to yeah. preface it by saying I don't mean it as that. Yeah. But I do think that the history of Birmingham is a cultural asset that is intangible in the sense that I think a lot of the answers to our social problems around the world are here. Like if we understand, if we mm. went back and studied the nuances of the movement and and, and not just the figurehead. Yeah. Um, we could really understand how to build social movements, how to galvanize people in an organized fashion, because I think like we just see the marches and, but there was a lot of strategy. Yeah. You know, uh, they, I got they, to study Dr. Thurman uh, the last few years, Howard Thurman, who had a big impact behind the scenes on Dr. King. And he talked a lot about what you're talking about and the behind the scenes and not just strategies. But actually, how do you form the movements uh, the, not, out of the, the disparate parts that seem to be against each other to yeah. actually make? And I, I'm, I agree with you. I think there's so much here to what happened then that we're in a place now that we need that yeah. in a deeper way. And it's not just in America. It's, it's yeah. globally. Yeah. Like uh, One of the things that I vowed was – UAB has a lot of students from Birmingham, particularly the suburbs, and I was struck by how little they knew about the history of the city. So I vowed to not let allow a student to leave my classroom without leaving letters from the Birmingham jail. Yeah. And we really talked about the nuances of the movement and like how strategic they were, like down to the exact day. They yeah. they were like, Okay, we're going to protest on Easter. We're gonna have to march on you know, they they were they were, or Mother's Day, like they were trying to figure out where we will have the most impact. And I think that, you know, oftentimes we think of like protest as the sporadic movement. And, and sometimes it, that does happen. Yeah, yeah, it breaks out. Yeah, yeah, breakouts. But um, protest and, and, and change, you know, comes with strategy. And that's why it was effective. And, yeah. and I think that those lessons are lost. Did you, did you ever read... Um Malcolm Gladwell's book of David and Goliath. I have not. So, I have it, but okay. I so read it. there's a specific chapter about what you're talking about oh. about the unknown stories about the strategies underneath and the timing mm-hmm. and all that. It's, it's fascinating. I have to look. Fascinating. That. Yeah. yeah. So, okay, Ronnie. Anything to add yes, before um, we go to tie it all I together? Just, I, just, I hate I can't stay longer. Yeah, well, we, we'll <laughs> definitely have you back, okay? okay? We can go deeper maybe on a particular subject. And um, I'm, I'm anxious to, or anticipatorily hoping to be uh, at the one of the parties at your new home someday. Yes. Uh, as I said, I'm very envious because there's something about that part of town and that architecture and the ivy and the old stone and the, the, the roof lines and, and the walking communities. And you could walk a couple, what, 
three or four blocks to Rojo to go eat, maybe, yeah. and the parks are right there mm-hmm. in the side. And that's kind of, I didn't quite get into that high level of it when I was growing up, but it's, it's like it. And there's something that draws my soul back to it. But Carrie says, I don't know how to take care of an old house, so we can't do that. So I'm hoping we can live vicariously, you, you know, can. maybe there. Yes, you can. You know? yeah, I, have, can. I have plenty of rooms. Yeah. <laughs> and, yes, I remember <laughs> going up the stairs uh, and breaking the glass on your table when we moved. So, uh, but it, it's almost like, and I don't want to put too much on this, but as we're talking, I'm just getting this thing in my mind, like, for me, full circle from com- to come back downtown, it feels like this last stage of my life, in some way, is supposed to pour back into Birmingham in mm-hmm. some in some way. Right. I don't know what it is exactly. It's a lot of opportunity to. Do yeah. That. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, gosh, I've, there's so many things we could still talk about and keep going. I'm trying not to miss something, but we can just say it until next time. Until of, until you know, next concluding time. Concluding with the. Final note, we can just say to be continued. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Love you. This was fun. Yeah, love this you so much, and thanks this. for coming. Yeah, Ronnie, thanks for your contribution. There's so much to go back to on all that, too, because I, I keep hearing these threads. Uh, the, the way my mind works is this synthetic. I just synthesize, and I'm, and I'm connecting a lot of things here, so I'm hoping it's you know stuff to push us forward. Me too. So, folks, uh, thanks for joining us uh, with Dr. Black today and, and our Aisha. co-host, Aisha. That's so important. I know. But it makes me feel more important if I know a doctor. <laughs> you, so, you know what I'm saying? I don't have don't any. Don't fall out. I can't, I, I can't resist. Well, yeah, I but I, say, I, I, have, I have no credentials of my own, no, no degrees or anything. So if I say I know a doctor, then it makes me feel better. You were before right. your time. Yeah. Labor markets don't need all these degrees now. Oh, really? That's so another. there's hope. There's hope for me, right? That is a fact. There's, My goodness. There's hope for me. You were a maverick. No, <laughs> I think you did very yeah, well. Yeah. Oh, great. I feel better already. Folks, thanks again for joining us. Uh, we'll be back soon with another episode of How's That Working For You?